reason, open them to the epistle of 1 John chapter 2. We're moving along with our study of 1 John, and I think that you probably noticed that what appears to be a very short, easy read, something that we can dispatch with very quickly, is much more detailed than we first thought. We, we make a lot of references to 1 John and, and the sermons, and sometimes we think that we've got the entire theology that's contained here in just a few short sound bites. But as usual, the context of Bible passages is very, very important. And unless you understand the surrounding material of the, of the verses that you pull out, then you're not really going to get the full impact of the meaning of what the Scripture says. Uh, an example of this is in the previous four messages that I've preached on verses 1 and 2. And we saw there that one little word, propitiation, opened us up into a big argument, not argument rather, but a big discussion. Someone might want to argue with me about it. But a big discussion of the tabernacle and also of the atonement, things that have been argued about in Christian circles for centuries. And 1 John 2 verse 2 just goes beyond really a simple word study that we would do there of the word propitiation. It actually goes to two opposing worldviews, two completely different ideas about our existence here and as Christians. I mean, what is, what is it that's central to salvation? Is God central? Is man central? Is it a combination of both God and man? Are God and man partners in salvation? Are they codependent with one another? Well, those are opposing views, and the answers to those questions have very important consequences. Well, those first two verses of John chapter 2 are very strongly debated. And we thank God that we can be saved without understanding everything that's in those two verses. Uh, there, uh, Some people see complications there. I don't really think that there are a lot of complications with it, but uh, especially if you're not predisposed when you look into the Scripture. And, and 1 John supposes that you have read the Gospel of John. And if you've read the Gospel of John, then 1 John 2 verse 2 shouldn't be so difficult. It's really not all that hard to figure out. But that be as it may, we've spent quite a bit of time in verse number 2. I stated my position, which naturally I think was the right one. And so we can move on with that and we can look at the next two verses. The character of the next verses that we're going to look at are quite different from those first two. Um, what the message here is really plain, it's clear-cut, it really doesn't leave too much of an opportunity for you to miss the meaning of it. It's the forceful way that John speaks here, and, and I really do appreciate what he says. He's expressing uh, an opinion about it, which happens to be God's opinion, and it's God's opinion because John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when John says things here, these next verses that we're going to read, he, he is very clear. He doesn't play with words. Let's look and see what he says. First John chapter 2, verse number 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Now if you remember back in the introduction that, we, that I gave on this series, 
there were misconceptions. I talked about misconceptions about John's nature. When Jesus called John and his brother James to be disciples, he gave them a nickname. He called them Boanerges. And the meaning of that is sons of thunder. And it's most likely that Jesus gave them that nickname because they were very direct in their approach. They were quick-tempered, no-nonsense type of type of people. Remember when Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, he sent the disciples ahead to get provisions from a city in Samaria. And the Samaritans refused to help. And so James and John spoke to Jesus and they said, Well, you want us to call down fire from heaven and just consume them like Elijah did? They were very direct in their approach. They didn't fool around. They had no patience. Well, after spending a great deal of time with Jesus, the character of John softened somewhat and he became more compassionate, so much so that he wrote a good deal about love. John is known as the apostle of love. And people look at this loving character of John and they really went too far to the other side of this. And so people began to picture John as a weepy, lovey-dovey, introspective, wet noodle. As I mentioned before when we talked about this, the sons of thunder became sons of a thermos. They weren't really very very intimidating at all. Nobody knows what John actually looked like. Um, There are pictures that came out of the Renaissance period, and we have a picture here tonight for you that we showed before. And you, you get this idea by looking at that picture that, you know, John really looks like a puppy dog that wants to be petted in that. And we really ought not to think of John that way because although he was a very compassionate person, he did teach God's love, but he taught God's love in the way that it should be taught. He taught that God hates sin, that God does not overlook sin, that God won't excuse sin, but instead what God did was he poured out his wrath upon his own son, which was an act of love in order that we might not have to suffer his wrath. And John would clearly tell us, that although God did this great act of love, if you are not one of his people, then his wrath is going to be poured out on you. So what John does, he contrasts the deepness of God's love by what it took to overcome his wrath. And what God did was he expended all of his wrath upon Christ for those who believe, and because of that were saved from God's wrath. So we see again, as we look in these particular verses that we've just read, this no-nonsense side of John peeks through, pokes through here in very direct language. We saw that in chapter 1, verse number 6. He said, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Again, in the 10th verse of chapter 1, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And we come to chapter 2 and John doesn't let up with that. He says in verse 4, he that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not found in him. I think most preachers shy away from that kind of language. If you were a member of John's church and you did some of the things that go on in our church, I think John would confront you and he would say something like this. You claim that you are a Christian? You claim that you're in the leadership of the church? You have some visible role in the church? Or even if you come and just sit in the pew each week and you pretend to be something outside that you're not in here, he would say, you, sir or madam, are a liar. It's pretty blunt, isn't it? That's exactly the language that we have here. John's fighting heresy in the church. And I'm not sure that John wasn't just a little bit fed up with what was going on. There were people around him that said they were Christians, and he was getting kind of irritated by the fact of the lifestyles that they lived. 
They were just pretending to be Christian. And I, and I suppose that there were some that were sneaking out and doing things outside of the church. And when they came back in, again, they pretended that they were totally different people. So he just comes out with blunt statements. You claim to be living. You say that you have risen with Christ and you say that you walk with him. But you are really lying because you're nothing but a dead, rotten sinner. It's exact parallel to what we were talking about on Sunday morning in Matthew chapter 7. You remember the scripture we read? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And can you see the exact same thing stated here? And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, I, I get a little bit exasperated, too, when I get wind of people in the church that have been around for years, and they are really pretending, and they're hypocrites. They're, they have a hypocritical holiness about them, and they pretend like they're with the program, and they're not really with the program at all. They're with their own program. They've got their own agenda. You know what God's agenda is? God's agenda is that we give all glory to him. Our lives must glorify God. That's God's agenda. And folks, when you don't do that, when you have sin in your life, when you pretend to be something that you aren't, you are messing with God's agenda. And God doesn't like that. Now, John doesn't know what else to say about this, but to speak the truth very bluntly. He says, you are a liar. Now, you're not going to hear that in the church of what's happening now. You're not going to hear that in the market-driven church because it's not really marketable, is it? You say, come to our church, because when you come here, we're going to expose your sins, you hypocrites. doesn't fit on the marquee that says, we're the church for people who don't like to go to church. Well, that's what we have in these verses. The real thrust of what John is trying to tell us here is, where is your assurance? What do you have your assurance in when you say that you're saved, but you don't keep the commandments? Now, I mentioned, I think, on Sunday morning that... When we speak about commandments here, we're not, we're not talking about just going down the list of the Ten Commandments, and people think they do a pretty good job of keeping those. I don't commit adultery, I don't do this, I don't do that, you know, I don't steal, I don't kill, things like that. And uh, keeping the commandments, yeah, I do a pretty good job of that. Well, we, we've proven already in the Sermon on the Mount that none of us do a good job at it at all. Not what Jesus is talking about here. But the commandments include so much more than... I mean, the Ten Commandments encompass everything, but you can get much more specific. And Christ told us things that we need to do, the kind of people that we need to be. And the Apostle Paul and, and Peter and, and James and others talk about what Christians should be like. And this is what, the, what John is talking about. If you don't keep the commandments, all those things that you've been taught... When you became Christians, where do you find your assurance? And it's just a simple, straightforward test. That's what we have here in 1 John. It's all about knowing God. How do you know that you know God? Now, verse number 3 says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now, if you go back to verses 1 and 2, we ran into major doctrinal considerations there. Some of you might have gotten lost in all of that. Some of you might have gotten mad in all of that. I don't know. But verses 1 and 2 lay down doctrine. And then it's John's style to follow that up, to switch from the strong doctrine and go to the practical side, something straight up, something very straightforward. 
And these, are, these themes are developed all throughout 1 John. I mean, how do you know God? There's a doctrinal element to that. And where does your doctrine fall? What are the truths that you hold? Maybe I say, should say it a little bit differently. Is your theology true? So in chapter 1, there was a, a test that was shown there. It's developed on throughout the rest of the book. It was a test of believing in the incarnation, believing that Jesus was God manifested in the flesh. John continues that when you get to the second chapter in verses 1 and 2. And his reference goes back to chapter 1, that Christ was God in the flesh and that he became a propitiatory sacrifice for our sins. That's pretty heavy doctrine. You get into all that, that's heavy doctrine. But now we come to something that's much simpler, something much more practical. You have to pass the first test. I mean, obviously, you have to believe in the incarnation. You have to believe in Christ's sacrifice. If you don't believe those things, you don't know enough to be saved. But this next one is simply a moral test. You're so smart in your doctrine, what did your doctrine actually do to your life? What is it that you understand that you've learned or what have you learned is it just facts and figures if you just learned some stories the way that you know truth the way that you know that it's actually sunk down in your soul is demonstrated by the moral test did you get enough that it actually changes your life this is what john is talking about with this test now if you're unchanged you're unsaved that's really the simplicity of first john 2 verses 3 through 6 You know, Jesus was a very profound doctrinal teacher. And when he was through teaching doctrine and giving life examples, he went to the cross and he became a sacrifice. And just before he did, you know what he told his disciples? If you love me, keep my commandments. That's the key to personal assurance. How do you you assure persecuted Christians? I mean, how do you tell people that have false teachers on every side of them, people that are confusing them, pounding on them from every side with this false doctrine. What do you do when there are church members and leaders in the church that fail as examples and there are people that have been looking to them and they begin to wonder, is anybody saved? Am I saved? How do you assure people like that? Well, you tell them about this personal moral test. Let God's word be true and every man a liar. You will not stand before God for anyone else. You don't have to give an account for anyone else but you. And the fact is that you can know that you are saved when you're not too sure about anybody else. And one of the ways that you do it is you know your doctrine, you see what you believe on, and John proposes another way right here. And that's do you keep God's commandments. That's a way to find out if you really know God. So there are actually three tests that are developed in 1 John. If you read commentary, just about everybody identifies them in in the same way, very similar terms. So woven within five chapters, rather, are three tests, doctrinal test, a moral test, and a social test. What do you know about God in your doctrine? What do you know about truth? What kind of person are you in relation to that truth? And then how do you treat others in relation to that truth? Those are three tests that you find in 1 John. Now, stated one more way, just running from cover to cover, is the full revelation of everything that God wants us to know about him. What he wants us to know about life is this. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. 
This is the first and great commandment. And the second is likened to it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now that's the introduction to the sermon. Now we're going to settle down and we're going to look more closely at the text. And between what you're getting on Sunday mornings, you already know where we're following the same themes. It's just the way God works things out that we end up with the same themes on Sunday morning and on Wednesday nights. And if you miss the narrow gate to heaven after coming on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, you can't, you're, not, you're not going to hell because it hadn't been explained to you. I'll guarantee you that. So what are we going to talk about here? Well, let's talk about, first of all, the possibility of knowing God. The possibility of knowing God. I think it's critical that we come to Wednesday night services. I think these are critical services. I mean, all all the services are important. But usually on Wednesday nights, I'm talking to the cream of the church member crop. You know what I mean? I mean, really, you folks in here, you're the ones that do the heavy lifting in the church. Other services people come to. But the, the heavy lifters come on Wednesday nights. I mean, that's no secret. There are people sometimes that struggle with the teaching and they have questions and they don't, uh, they can't figure certain things out. And one of the reasons that they can't figure things out and they have a lot of questions, nothing wrong with questions. I love to answer questions, as you know. But one of the reasons why there are so many questions is because so many people miss so many services. And the answer to their questions a lot of times are in the services that they missed. And when we teach through the Bible and we're taking it book by book and we're just plodding around, plodding on, I should say, verse by verse, missing something leaves a hole in your understanding. I mean, there, there are church members that are used to preachers that thumb through the Bible looking for a scripture to land on to preach a sermon from. And when you do that, all that you can get is general knowledge of things. You don't get things in the whole context. And so preachers like that end up telling stories and giving object lessons. And that's the extent of the kind of preaching that you get. I like what one good Bible expositor said. He said, the Bible explains the Bible. The Bible explains the Bible. And the hearers of, in, in many different churches would not know that by the skip, hop, and jump method. I mean, they don't know anything about the continuity of the Scripture. And when you come to a book like 1 John, the the, the truths here and what John is talking about, I told you before, it's so intertwined that you you can't hardly miss a service and really get the whole picture. You have to have some continuity. Now, hopefully, as I teach... You get some, you, you hear the continuity in the teaching, but you have to be here. There has to be some continuity in you also. If you're going to get it all, you've got to be here and you've got to listen to what's being said. An example of this is in verse number 3, where he says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. You read one verse there, and you'll, if, you, if that's all you read, you would know that John uses the word know 32 times in the book. Know is the important word in 1 John. And here in one verse, he uses it twice. Know has special significance because the people that were causing so much trouble in the church were people that claimed to know something. You know who they are? The Gnostics. And their name comes from the Greek word that means to know. It's about knowledge. And that's the, whole, that's the background of the book. Know is an important word in 1 John. And so John is constantly contrasting what they claim to know with the true knowledge of God. 
And so he would put it this way. They claim to know something, but here is what we really know. And what we really know is that we know God. You see, a true Christian is one who knows God, and a true Christian is also one who knows that he knows God. It doesn't sound like there's much of a difference in those two statements, but there is. And this is the theme. It's the key to the whole book. What do we know? How much do we know that we know about God? So assurance, that's the key to First John. And you'll come away from First John as a Christian who knows that he knows God, or you'll apply the tests that are here and you'll become very unsettled. And you'll realize there's something missing. I don't know God the way that I should know God or the way that I think that I know God. You apply the test and you're going to find out how much you know about God. So for a few minutes here tonight, we're going to explore the word know. Is there a possibility that you can know God as John means it? And I'm going to give you two words tonight that describe how some people think that they know God. And neither one of these is what John means when he uses the word know. And I'm not going to give you the one that he does mean until next week. So you've got to come back. That's the continuity. So you've got to get it next week. Okay, what, what, what kind of knowledge are we talking about here Two ways that you can't know God, actually. The first one is educational knowledge. If we were going to put the problem right up front that was plaguing the church in John's time, this is it. This is it. I mean, it was to know God, they thought. They thought you could know God as an academic pursuit or as a philosophical pursuit. The way to understand God and everything that's around us, whatever forces that control the universe, all of that can be found out by intellect. It can be found out by deductive reasoning. And I'm not talking about finding a mechanical reason for the universe. I mean, not why there are stars and why there are planets and why we have the material portion of the universe. There's also an educational pursuit that goes for that, a different philosophy. That's evolution. That's what evolution is all about, trying to figure those things out. And let me stop for just a minute here again, and I'll say it again. Evolution is not compatible with John's use of the word no. And that's because evolution denies the truth of God's word. God is not different, and he doesn't work differently than what is revealed in his word. It's always going to be that. But the kind of knowledge that I'm speaking of here is to know from education the invisible portion of the universe. And that is by reasoning and deduction, by elevating your mind, that you can find out logically what lies behind the material. That's what philosophy is. That's really what philosophy is all about. In John's day, it was Greek and Roman philosophy. The world was consumed with that philosophy and gone on for years. You remember when Paul went to Athens that he found a city there that was blanketed with with altars to mythological gods, and he encountered the prevailing physical, uh, philosophical thought of the day, and that was the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were followers of Epicurus, and the Stoics were followers of Zeno, and their philosophies had been competing, had been around for about 300 years, and they were trying to find out how did all this happen. I mean, uh, what, what is this invisible force behind the universe? What is it that produced the material? And they were so busy with that pursuit of knowledge that they spent all of their time discussing that. That's what consumed them. They, they were always looking for some new, brilliant, philosophical approach to things. And this is why they were so interested in the Apostle Paul. Because when he came, he came with something different. He was reasoning differently. He, he said some different things. 
You know, we might be a little bit confused about that, be confused about that whole story of Paul on Mars Hill and, and there his encounter with the, the idols, the altars, and the one to the unknown God. You know, actually, they had lots of altars, perhaps even hundreds of altars to unknown gods. And the thing that we don't understand sometimes is they are not, or they were not ignorant of the Hebrew God. You know, that's, that's the way it's taught sometimes, that, Paul, that the, these people in Athens were ignorant of the Hebrew God. No, folks, they were too educated not to know about the Hebrew God. I mean, there were Jews scattered all over the Roman Empire. Of course they knew about the Hebrew God. Their problem was they didn't like the exclusivity of the Hebrew God. And that's because this God says you can't have any other gods. That's what bothered them. And we don't have time to go into the systematic approach that Paul gave to demolish their philosophy, but it basically boiled down to this. Boys, your philosophy doesn't make sense because in the end it gets you nowhere. And indeed it did get them nowhere. Listen to what Paul says in Corinthians. And, and, and Corinth was just a short distance down the road from Athens, but he writes in 1 Corinthians, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So he says, the world by wisdom knew not God. And after hundreds of years of searching by philosophers, they had not come an inch closer to finding about God, knowing who he was. I mean, their education gave them nothing. And the demonstration of how far that they were from God, actually knowing God, you know what it was? The demonstration that they didn't know God? Their morality. These people, these philosophers, were some of the most immoral people that the world has ever seen. And, and John was confronted with that in First John. It's the background that we have here. The Gnostics came out of that Greek philosophy. They claimed to be Christians, but their background was not truth. Their background was Greek and Roman philosophy. So they had no foundation for their thinking. It was Greek and Roman philosophy that was the foundation. That's the background of John's statement. And the proof that they didn't know God as true Christians know God is the viewpoint that they had of sin. And their viewpoint of sin, in turn, produced their wicked lifestyles. And so John says, if you were stuck on that philosophy, is there, if there is no obedience to the commandments, then you aren't a Christian. You haven't found out God. Now here is the problem today. And that is that we have Christianized the very same thing. Some people think that they know God educationally gone to Sunday school classes, they've attended Bible study classes, uh, they wouldn't dare miss a meeting of BSF. And they've reduced God to knowing things like the story of the manger, the visit to the temple at 12 years old, the miracle of turning water into wine, various other miracles. And they even know that, that Jesus went to the cross. They know that he arose from the dead. But you can know all of that academically and you can be as lost as Adam's goose. And you can have all of this head knowledge and not know Christ. Churches are filled with that. I mean, they've even got the educational wings on the building, don't they? 
Classes after classes, class for recovering alcoholics, recovering drug addicts, divorced without kids, divorced with kids, soulmate classes, depression classes, you name it. They've got all of it, but they never actually got close to really knowing Christ. See, there's something deeper that's going on here. You can't, you can't take just philosophy. You can't even take Christianized philosophy and find out God. God is always going to be the same as he is in the written word. And so if you've imagined what God is and you've reasoned out how you think that God should act, you've missed him. Do you know why? Because Paul says it right here. You are depending upon worldly wisdom and worldly wisdom cannot find out God. It just never happens that way. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that only ignorant, uneducated people can be saved? It doesn't mean that at all. It means that if your pursuit is gathering facts like you're trying to solve a Sherlock Holmes mystery, you're never going to find God. He can't be found out that way. So that's one idea that they had. Here's the second one, and that is emotional knowledge. Now, we have to think, first of all, again, about the context of this type of knowledge, and it is continuity that we need to draw out as John uses the word. See, the Gnostics still had it in their view, still had, or rather the Gnostics are still in view here, and they have it packed into their brains, all of this knowledge that they think that they had, this super-duper extraordinary knowledge, and they've got everything figured out. So what happens then if rationalization, exercising thought processes, what if that's not the way to find out God? Well, many people aren't satisfied with that. Lots of folks are not satisfied with educationally trying to find out God. You know, I think about, I don't know, maybe you've seen some of these science fiction movies where they have uh, like a brain that's been separated from a body and it's got tubes coming in and out of it and fluids running all in and out of it and this brain is controlling things by thought processes. You wouldn't want to exist like that, would you? I mean, a person that can't walk wants to walk and a person that's blind wants to see. A fellow that's paraplegic doesn't really want to just think about things. He wants to experience things. He wants to get up. He wants to go. He wants to walk. He wants to exercise. He wants to feel things. That's the idea. There was this system of thought in John's day that you experience God through emotions. That knowledge is not, knowledge of God is not just how you think, but it's how you feel. And that would lead them into thinking that if you experience God through feelings, then they have to be good feelings, don't they? They have to be good feelings if that's God. So sensualization is what they thought. That has to be gratifying. And don't we know there are a lot of things that please the flesh? Many things can give you euphoric feelings. Most of us know that 99% of them are immoral. Get lots of good feelings. Why do people drink? Why do people take drugs? Why do they go to bars where they commit lewd acts? Why do people do things like that? Because it feels good, doesn't it? They want to experience that. And, and for a while, it does make them feel good. And you have to remember that John is dealing with a decadent society. I mean, here you have a world that religion is filled with temple prostitutes and drunkenness. And the proof of that is to look at the Corinthian church. They started to slip back into their old lifestyles. Even the Lord's Supper was a mockery. And they were fornicating. And so Paul writes to them and he says in 1 Corinthians 6, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, 
nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You, you see what's in, a, in that list? A lot of things are in there. What, what, what is that? Self-gratification. You see a lot of self-gratification there, doing what feels good. And so Paul says, you're cleansed from that. You've been justified from your sins, haven't you? You have been, haven't you? Or as John would say it this way, if you say that you have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, you lie and do not the truth. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, just like that old hedonism of the ancient world, there's also a Christian counterpart to this, a pseudo-Christian counterpart. And you see a glimpse of it, if you want to thumb over there to 1 John chapter 4. I think we maybe have it on the screen. But he says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. What does he mean by spirits? Well, he means experiences that you think are Christian experiences, but they really come from the master of deceit. They come from the one who's able to counterfeit God. Now, the other day, I heard a comment that a lady that we know didn't want to come to Berean. And her, her reason was because it's too boring. What does that mean? Well, I think I know what it means. There isn't enough emotion drummed up here. I mean, people don't get up and shout. They don't bounce around the aisles. And nobody's going to do a great outburst with wild tongues. And there's no rock and roll atmosphere in Berean Baptist Church. You see, people trust emotions. And that's because their faith is built on their feelings. You know what happens after a service that rocked somebody's world? You know what happens after that? Well, it's good for about a day. They're sustained for about a day. Then you know what happens? They have to come, they have to come back on Sunday because they've got to get their feel-good fix again. They didn't really get anything that lasts them throughout the week, so they have to come back on Sunday. Boring to them is anything that doesn't stimulate the senses, and have a rocking good time. Well, a couple more thoughts on this, and we'll close. You, need, you, need to, you do need to watch out for those kind of people, because sooner or later, what they know about Christ is actually going to show through. They're going to show it in their life somewhere. I mean, they got all the emotions at church, and that's the thing that they do, but it's going to show up somewhere how much they really know about God. You know, it always amazed me. I'll throw this into it. It really amazed me that Jimmy Swaggart. How many know who Jimmy Swaggart is? All right, some of you. Jimmy Swaggart. You know, he, he uh, could speak in tongues on Sunday and pick up a prostitute on Saturday. I don't know how you do that. I mean, that, that's really kind of confusing to me. I, I don't know how that happens. But I'll tell you something else. It's also amazing that some of you, maybe not you, this is the good crowd tonight. <laughs> but some of you can, some of the folks in Berean Baptist Church can show up on Sunday all just fine after having whatever they do, and I don't know what you do, at 3 a.m. on Saturday morning. What can you possibly do at 3 a.m. on Saturday morning? Well, the Christianized form of emotionalism shows up in the pragmatism of the market-driven market driven church philosophy. So what do these people do? Well, they hit on something that swells the church in a short amount of time. 
and they have the type of show that they produce in their Sunday morning services that's electrifying for a little while. You know, I've talked about the, uh, the movie The Passion of the Christ and how the new evangelicals got into a frenzy for a little while over that movie. I mean, churches purchased licenses so they could show the film in their churches. And then the theaters were packed out with church-going people to see the passion of the Christ. And they all proclaimed, this is the greatest evangelistic tool that the world has ever seen. Where is it now? Where is the greatest evangelistic tool the world has ever seen? Where? It's been replaced by the next greatest evangelistic tool the world has ever seen. See, the market-driven church is always driven by what? The market, exactly right. Your customers don't want 3G anymore. They have to have 4G. So you go out and you buy a new phone. You've got to get a new phone. I mean, have you seen anybody lately wearing a Nehru jacket or a leisure suit? Why? Because it's out of style. It's not the thing. It's not the fad today. That's long behind the times. So what drives these people is the emotional high when they go to church. What have you done for me lately? I mean, how can you keep me from being bored when I go to church? I mean, have all these toys and all these things that we've got, all this entertainment that we have, what are you going to do to keep me entertained? How are you going to keep my attention? And that's what the church growth movement is all about. They move from fad to fad to fad. And there's always a fading fad. And the next fading fad has to be replaced before your fickle followers fade. Funny that Paul said this, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. That is our church growth strategy. It's the only one we have. It's the only one we've got here. Preach the gospel. So what's the answer to all of this? Well, John doesn't say that you know that you can be a Christian by your education. You've got an educational test, and if you pass the educational test, then you are a Christian. And he doesn't say you can know you're a Christian by the emotional test. So how, how emotional can you get about things? Nope. Here's the test, verse number three. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And so if you aren't identified correctly by verse number three, John says you don't know Christ. Simple test, isn't it? Tests get a little bit harder in the next part that we'll talk about in a couple, three weeks. They get a little bit harder, but this is a simple one, I think. Very, very simple test. Do you obey Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your blessings and the opportunity to look into your word. Lord, you haven't made things difficult for us. Just laid it out very, very simply for us. We know that we know you if we keep your commandments. If we are the same outside as we are in here, there's truth in our lives, not hypocrisy then we're going to keep the commandments, and that way we know that we know you. I pray, Lord, for assurance for your people, and may they find it in this test that John has given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.